Welcome to the Global Research News Hour Summer Series. My name is Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a weekly public affairs broadcast produced at CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, on occupied Anishinaabe territory on the homeland of the Metis Nation, in partnership with the Center for Research on Globalization. Our shows air on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States and are podcast at the website globalresearch.ca. This week, we are airing part of a Winnipeg presentation by Professor Julia Buxton on the topic, Venezuela Was Another World Possible? for the 2017 Geopolitical Economy Research Group Conference at the University of Manitoba. The conference was timed with the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution and therefore chose to explore revolutions as a theme. The rise of Venezuelan leader Hugo Chavez and the Bolivarian Revolution that Rise had inspired provides a crucial case study for discussion. Venezuela underwent a period of radical transformation with the turn of the 21st century, inspiring a wave of regional progressive left governments coming to power across the Latin American region. Julia Buxton notes, however, that amid the redistribution of the political, economic, and cultural power within Venezuela, dysfunction and contradictions began to emerge during Chavez's third and final term and entering into the first term of his successor, Nicolás Maduro. Buxton's keynote lays out a great deal of the historical development from before Chavez's election in 1998 to the current period and expresses hope mixed with pessimism about Venezuela's revolutionary aims and objectives surviving the repression, regression, and corruption so close to the core of the state apparatus. Julia Buxton is Professor of Comparative Politics at Central European University's School of Public Policy and Senior Research Associate at the Global Drug Policy Observatory at Swansea University. She is a specialist on Latin America and an expert on Venezuela, receiving her PhD from the London School of Economics, where she also studied for her MA with distinction in comparative politics. The talk we are about to hear was recorded by videographer Paul S. Graham. Here is Julia Buxton speaking on Sunday, October 1, 2017 at the University of Manitoba in the Schultz Theatre at St. John's College. So my journey in Venezuela then began in the early 1990s when I had just finished my master's at the London School of Economics and my work was very much focusing on the role of trade unions in democratization processes and I was comparing Latin America uh, with Eastern Europe and when I thought about doing a PhD um, I was particularly keen to look at Mexico because at that point in time, early 1990s, Mexico was the place to be doing really radical innovative research and particularly in terms of understanding the pushback against neoliberalism. And my PhD supervisor um, said, I don't want you to go to Mexico, um, if you want to do a PhD with me, I think you should go to Venezuela which was quite a heartbreaking thing to hear at the time when you feel all radical and activist because Venezuela was something of an unknown quantity. And it's also quite a difficult country to study because of the oil economy and the rentier dynamics of the state. Um, but nevertheless, um, under his very strong urging, and I do mention this because I think sometimes the way we go academically and intellectually is influenced by people uh, who we don't really acknowledge enough uh, in our work, um, so I went to Venezuela, um, I was given the intense methodological advice by my supervisor and for any of you who are working in academia methodology as you know, whether you're quantitative or qualitative, and the advice that I got from my advisor who was a very um, 
elite Oxbridge educated gentleman in a safari suit was uh, the approach I want you to take is FOFO. Um, is anybody here familiar with FOFO? Essentially FOFO means f off and find out. And that was why I was sent to Venezuela with the FOFO approach in mind. Um, and Venezuela was interesting at this point in time because in 1989 there had been a horrific uh, experience in Venezuela and this was called the Caracaso um, of February 1989. And during this period, uh, there was a major uh, popular demonstration uprising against a neoliberal economic package that was introduced by former president Carlos Andres Perez, who's pictured down here um, at the bottom of the screen. And this popular rebellion was brutally and violently um, suppressed by the Venezuelan state. Um, and particularly through the deployment of the Venezuelan armed forces. And that in turn triggered a rebellion within the armed forces from the junior ranks who thought this was absolutely outrageous that the, the proud Bolivarian military forces had been used to suppress their own people. And this really is the beginning of the political career of Hugo Chavez, who you see at the top there in the picture um, with the other leaders of the attempted coup um, in 1992. Now, the coup failed um, and Chavez went to prison. Um, but what you will probably be aware of is that Chavez then really began to unravel through this coup attempt um, this system which was known as Vene Democracia. Very briefly, because Sunday morning at 9.30 is not really the time for going through Venezuela's recent history, um, Venezuela was very late in coming to democracy. It wasn't until 1958 that the country moved away from uh, military dictatorship here under Juan Vicente Gomez. And so Venezuela had a pacted transition. Um, and in this respect, we have the emergence of two dominant parties. It was a dominant two-party system. Uh, some of the academic analysts refer to this as partidocracia. Um, and this was Acción Democrática, or AD, and COPE, which was the Christian Democrat Party. And in 1958, these two uh, bitter rivals put aside their differences and, through a pact, agreed that essentially they would share power. And this power-sharing agreement brought into it the military, the church, the private sector, uh, represented through an organization called Fede Camaras, uh, and also the trade union movement. So this was, in effect, the creation of a very clientelistic framework of politics. Uh, so it was only through the official unions that you would be recognized as a worker, and it was only through the official private sector organization, Fede Camaras, that you were able to access government and political <coughs> representation. This is all very important because it really kind of links to my full circle argument on Venezuela. Now, the way that these two parties, AD and COPE, stabilized Venezuela was that they essentially shared power. They shared appointments in the judiciary, they shared appointments in the electoral administration, um, they shared effectively positions in the state bureaucracy. So this was a power sharing agreement. Now, this enabled Venezuela to avoid the catastrophic right-wing military interventions that we saw in countries such as Argentina and Uruguay and Brazil. And Venezuela had what we call a positive sum game, and this was enabled by its oil export revenues. Because the oil export revenues flowing out of, uh, sorry, coming into Venezuela from its oil exports was then distributed through the Venezuelan state to the parties and to their affiliated unions and organizations. 
So this created a positive sum game. There was no class conflict in the way we would understand occurred in places like Brazil and Argentina. But then this began to unravel dramatically in the 1980s and in the early 1990s for a whole host of reasons, but in particular, and this is again the full circle argument, reliance on oil export revenues. And the problem was during periods of boom economic prices, Venezuela was known as the Saudi Arabia of Latin America. It was one of the fastest growing economies in the world, massive reductions in poverty and inequality, but then oil bust. And when the price of oil exports diminished, Venezuela was left in a very, very difficult financial situation. And the way the parties sought to manage this, and this links to Kisi's keynote the other day, was through this kind of creation of a welfare state as a way of ameliorating political and class conflict. But to keep this model going, they borrowed money from overseas. So Venezuela became increasingly indebted, producing ultimately a major debt crisis by the early 1990s. Now, this gentleman down here, Carlos Perez, he sought to deal with this through a process that I called perestroika, because what Perez sought to do was liberalise the economy, this kind of very neoliberal approach, but at the same time, and as a way of trying to reduce popular protest, he also opened up the political system. So he made it possible for minor parties to compete. There was processes of decentralisation and processes of attempted political reform. So when I arrived in Venezuela, the country was in crisis, but there was a real breakdown of the traditional political system. Carlos Andres Perez himself was impeached, Chavez was in prison, and what we had was a scenario that was wide open for the emergence of non-traditional populist figures. And when I arrived in Venezuela, that non-traditional populist figure who everybody was looking to to save Venezuela was a beauty queen. And that beauty queen was Irene Saez. Irene Saez had been Miss Universe, which is the inevitable qualification for a holding presidential office in Venezuela. Um, she had this you know, wide popular appeal, so everybody was looking to Irene. Now, I had this choice of either looking at a beauty queen, she was mayor of Chacao, um, but by the time, you know, we can talk about looking at beauty queens uh, in the Q&A. Um, but I actually was more interested in what was happening on the left. And in Venezuela, I became particularly drawn to an organization that was called La Causere. And La Causere, which had been formed by um, a gentleman called Alfredo Maniero, who's photographed there, um, had developed this theory. Um, it moved itself away from the traditional Venezuelan left, the socialist left, which was represented by the mass party, the movement to socialism. And Maniero's argument that was that due to the underdevelopment of the working class, because of the overwhelmingly informal nature of Venezuela, because of the specifics of Venedemocracia, there needed to be an alternative route to social change. And I emphasize social change. And the whole theory and position of La Causere was to focus on mobilisation in three key sectors. First of all, these three pillars, uh, three legs of the stool, as Maniero called it, first of all was the attempt to build independent trade union organisation. So union organisation that was separate from the Punto Fijo Vene Democracia trade unions. And the focus really of this activity was down in Bolivar State, um, in the south of Venezuela, which was the centre of the heavy industrial drive of the 1970s. 
The other main locus was the intellectuals, and the focus here was largely in Caracas, um, and this was about trying to change the cultural dominance of what was seen as being Yankee imperialism um, of Venezuela. So it's trying to engage in intellectuals and trying to present alternative visions of Venezuela's culture and identity and history from that which had been presented by the Punto Fijo system. And then the final leg here was the popular sectors, the massive, sprawling, informal economies. Um, and you see this picture here. This really, I think, is emblematic of the distinctions in Venezuelan society between, on the one side of the highway, the wealthy and the privileged, and then on the other side of the highway, these mass, sprawling barrios of Venezuela. And this is where La Causa sought to mobilize. And it ran in the presidential elections, but it faced really serious challenges. Um, electoral fraud, and this is why looking at fraud, uh, electoral fraud was so important to me, um, but also high levels of repression by the Venezuelan state, and particularly down in Bolivar. Um, Andre Velaque ran, who was the uh, candidate for La Causere, ran for the presidency um, in 1993. Um, but was really quite roundly defeated in what looked like, to my mind, one of the most fraudulent elections that Venezuela had had in the modern period. Now, going back then was that Velasquez had been essentially sidelined because of this electoral defeat, and you had this radiant, beautiful, blonde-haired, blue-eyed former Miss Universe who was taking the country by storm. And then out of nowhere, and literally, I mean out of nowhere, we had the emergence of this former leader of the coup attempt of 1992, which was Hugo Chavez after his release from prison. Now, Chavez mobilized with an organization, uh, his Movimiento Quinta Republica, which was the fifth Republican movement. And what was interesting about Chavez is that he had a profound skepticism of civilian political organizations. And in particular, Chavez's skepticism related to what he saw as having been the failure of La Causere to mobilize in support of the coup attempt of 1992. So for Chavez and for Chavez's supporters in the military, central to their vision was the notion of the military having a leading role as the driving force of revolutionary change and the perception that civilian organizations were utterly unreliable and spent all of their time arguing about left-wing positions in meeting rooms. Chavez wanted action. So Chavez mobilized around Quinta Republica and had this tremendous success in the presidential elections of 1998. I was in Venezuela for the British government as the election observer, um, and it was an extraordinary experience to see all of these votes coming in for Chavez. And when it was very clear that Chavez had won, Saez, the beauty queen, kind of killed her election campaign at the end because as Chavez rose up, she became increasingly right-wing and neoliberal and tried to look for agreements with Aidy and Coppe. And then arguably the most fatal um, aspect of her campaign, when asked who one of her heroes or role models was, she said, Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> However... Chavez was citing his hero as Tony Blair. <laughs> so, Chavez steams through these elections as Irini Saez collapses, um, and what we have then is the movement towards this new phase of Venezuelan history, which is the effort to deconstruct the Fourth Republic and build the Fifth Republic. 
Now, this is where I think we need to pay a little bit of attention to who was influencing Hugo Chavez, because what we're seeing currently from both the political left and the political right is, in my view, this effort to rewrite Venezuelan history and to rewrite Chavez. Um, and in particular, from both left and right, we have this idea that Chavez was, since the emergence of his political career, a committed Marxist. I completely disagree. It's very difficult. And what, what prompted me with this conference, I went back and was reading some of these original interviews with Chavez, with people like Faruco Sesto, who were around Chavez at the time. Um, and you really are struck by the emphasis and the influence of Latin American thinkers and writers, and also European, but European kind of mainstream democratic socialist thinkers. So I would say that when Chavez first came to power in 1999, the kinds of main intellectual influences that we see for Chavez was first of all Simón Bolívar, the leader of the Venezuelan independence movement, um, who had also liberated other countries in the region, Bolivia, Ecuador. And Bolivar's arguments in the mid-19th century was that these new countries of Latin America had to unify and defend themselves against not the Spanish and not the rampaging imperialist Brits, but instead against this new emerging power to the north called the United States. So for Bolivar, there had to be regional integration to defend the independence of Latin America. So Bolivarianism, and what Richard got in his wonderful book on Chavez, The Liberator, has detailed, is the influence of Bolivar and of Bolivar's own teacher, Simón Rodríguez, and also the independence leaders of Venezuela, Zamora, and all these kind of very traditional historical leaders of Venezuelan independence and nationalism movements. I would say that the other key influence on Chávez was Juan Velasco Alvarado uh, of Peru. He was the leader of the military coup attempt in Peru in the late 1960s. Um, and in particular, Chávez was drawn to the Peruvian military model because unlike the right-wing militaries of Chile and Argentina, the Peruvian military saw themselves as key actors in national development. And this was profoundly influential for Chávez and his Bolivarian vision that the military had the key role in national reconstruction. Um, Eduardo Galeano was also profoundly um, important, as later was Chomsky. You may have seen images of uh, Chávez waving around Galeano's open veins of Latin America and this engagement with the historical dependency and exploitation of Latin American countries by the imperial powers. And then also... Anthony Giddens and the notion of a new model of third-wave socialism. So there was Tony Blair in there, there was a Tony Giddens in there, there was Simon Bolivar. Chavez was a real intellectual magpie. But the key thing is that the emphasis was not on Marxism, it wasn't on socialism, it was about building the Fifth Republic and deconstructing the Fourth Republic, the 1958 Punto Fijo model. So what we have then is this immediate first phase from around 1999 where the focus is on the following. Firstly, the overriding centrality of constitutional reform. A constituent assembly was convened, there was a redrafting of the uh, Venezuelan constitution which was uh, released and approved by popular referendum in 2000. There was an emphasis on participatory or what they call protagonistic democracy because the Ponto Fijo system had marginalized and excluded and controlled popular participation. 
What the Bolivarian Revolution wanted to do was to build a new protagonistic model in which emphasis was instead placed not on the formal liberal institutions of the liberal democratic model, but a more Rousseauian vision of direct democracy, of community control, of community councils. So we had politics and institutions and a reconfiguring of the institutions. Every arm of the state was dominated by Action Democratica and Coppe. So they rebuilt the judiciary. They created a new judiciary, the TSJ, the Supreme Justice Tribunal. The old electoral commission was reframed, rebuilt. It became the CNE, the National Election Commission. Was National Assembly was created out of the old Congress and Senate. The old Senate was sidelined, dissolved, and we had a National Assembly. So there was a major institutional reconfiguration. Now, the other thing that was central in terms of the Constitution and these early initiatives was also an emphasis on social policy. And here, and we see in the 2000 Constitution, new social rights written into the Constitution of the Bolivarian state. And in particular, what we were looking at here were programs that were intended to overcome the chronic inequalities, structural inequalities, marginalization and exclusion of Venezuelan society. So there's an emphasis here on the role and responsibility of the state in education provision, in health provision, in housing provision. The social economy, um, and again, very much influenced here uh, for Chavez by the notion of a kind of third way, moving in and rectifying the failures of the market, there was a strong emphasis on the importance of oil sovereignty, that the Venezuelan state had lost control of its hydrocarbon resources. And this essentially followed a strategy of privatization in the state oil company PDVSA, um, which had been uh, pursued in the late 80s and early 1990s under the uh, neoliberal structural adjustment process. And as a result of this opening up and privatization of Venezuela, the view of the new Bolivarian government, the ideas of people like Bernard Mama, of Ali Rodriguez, who had been very influential in the Causa Ere, bringing the ideas of people historically like Salvador de la Plata about state ownership of hydrocarbon resources. So there was a big push to reverse the privatisation and to nationalise the oil sector. And under, new under the new constitution and under legislation that was developed by the National Assembly, the Venezuelan state had to have a maximum 51% share in any oil-related exploration activities. And linked with this, and in terms of foreign policy, the aim was to try and drive up the international oil price. And crucial to mention here is that when Chavez came to power, Venezuela was essentially producing oil at a loss. Venezuela has very dirty, heavy, crude oil. It takes, it's enormously expensive to drill um, and it's very difficult to refine. And it trades below the global oil price basket. But the emphasis now was trying to drive and lift up this oil price through aligning with other hawks in OPEC, um, such as Iran, and then trying to ensure that once you control your oil sector, you can actually maximise the revenues of your oil economy. So this was a complete repudiation of the idea that commodity-dependent countries had to actually diversify um, and sell or give away, privatise their natural resources. What Chavez was saying here was that we need to have sovereignty over our oil resources, but, and crucially, we, need, we do need to diversify. And we can actually use these oil revenues to effectively stimulate national development across the country. 
And then the final aspect here, foreign policy. Um, Venezuela, through this model and ideas of Bolivarianism, looked to regional integration, but integration not on the basis of these competitive race to the bottom free trade agreements, but instead around the ideas of collaboration and sharing each other's comparative advantage. Building new institutions, moving away from this terrible uh, regional organization called the Organization of American States, which is simply there um, to be the kind of puppet of US foreign policy, to move and promote South-South development, linking up countries in the global South, and also to build a multipolar vision of the world order. So to completely move away from the unipolar dominance of the United States. So I would call this phase one of the Bolivarian revolution. Um, and this was really, to my mind, a progressive, broad coalition. And in particular here, you also see the military coming into politics. But the reality of this first phase of the Bolivarian revolution is that there was very little social initiative. Okay? There wasn't a huge pro-poor agenda. The emphasis was on institutional and constitutional redesign. If we don't control the judiciary and the National Election Council, we're just going to be simply overthrown from within. So this was the primary focus. But then we move to a far more dramatic phase. And this dramatic phase is 2002, when we have the coup attempt against Hugo Chavez. Um, this extraordinary moment in Venezuela led to, for 48 hours, um, this interim right-wing junta led by Pedro Carmona, who had been the president of Fede Camaras, which was the private sector organization that had previously been part of the formal Punto Fijo state structures. Now, this was a really interesting moment, and we can talk about this in the, uh, the Q&A, um, but for, for the UK, which was, you know, everybody talks about the US being involved in this, but the British government was very much involved in this, and, and particularly Tony Blair, which was a shame given how much Chavez appeared to like him at the time. Um, and we had this very embarrassing moment, as we tend to do being British, um, where one of our foreign ministers, a gentleman called Dennis McShane, who was subsequently sent to prison for corruption, um, appeared on television and said, I'm really glad to see that Hugo Chavez has been overthrown. I never liked the fella. And then 48 hours later, Chavez was back. Um, and Chavez was back overwhelmingly because of the mobilization of popular sectors. And there's a wonderful film that I'm sure many of you have seen called The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, um, when the Irish film company RTE, who had gone to interview Chavez, found themselves then trapped in the presidential palace when it was the coup attempt. So if you haven't seen The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, I strongly recommend it. Um, so this, the experience of the coup attempt transformed the Bolivarian Revolution in my mind. And I would say that we actually moved from the Bolivarian Revolution um, to Chavismo. And this is Chavez, if you read the words of Federal Cossesto, Chavez hated the term Chavismo. Um, because he's, he didn't want this revolution to be about him. But I think what we see during this phase is growing popular identification. Clearly there was before, um, but I would say that Chavez as the kind of central glue in this process of transformation um, really becomes essential at this point. Um, and what we see from this point onwards, where is Chavez and, you know, during the first phase they've been a bit relaxed, constitutional reform, institutional reform. This was now a real revolutionary process. And it was aided and facilitated by the fact that the regional and the international environment was beginning to change. 
So in particular here, what we were beginning to see during this second phase was firstly a lift in the international oil price, which was of course connected to the fact that the United States was very distracted with its war on terror, instability in the Middle East, the oil price is rising. This means Venezuela has a real uh, in uh, increase in revenues coming into the state, which can then be distributed into a range of initiatives, social policy initiatives, to consolidate the popular sector and really address these uh, issues of inequality. The other key thing was there was major anti-US sentiment in the region at the time, uh, most of the time really, obviously, um, but at this particular time linked to efforts to push through the free trade area of the Americas. But also, and absolutely centrally here, you had the beginnings of the pink tide. So Chavez was no longer on his own. Um, he now found himself with you know, regional sympathizers and emphasizers empathizers and sympathizers, um, such as Kirchner in Argentina, Lula in Brazil, which was hugely, hugely important, and then this coalition um, of progressive left forces, Correa was elected in Ecuador, and Evo Morales in Bolivia. So Venezuela is no longer operating, unlike today, in a deeply hostile regional environment, um, and this enabled major traction on key institution-building initiatives. And I would also say that during this phase, Chavez becomes personally closer to Fidel Castro and Venezuela becomes bilaterally closer to Cuba. And in particular here, as we'll see in a second, this is the beginning of the oil for doctors exchange programs. This is where Chavez, who had seen Fidel Castro as a mentor previously, but this is where this relationship becomes very, very tight, very close and very important. And where you have this increased emphasis on the necessity of the civilian military defense of the revolution. So this is a real shift. My name is Michael Welch, and you're listening to the Global Research News Hour, airing on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. The show is podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. Today, as part of our summer series, we're airing a talk at the University of Manitoba by Professor Julia Buxton on the topic of Venezuela. Was another world possible? This keynote address was part of the university's Geopolitical Economy Research Group conference, held in the fall of 2017. Here is more of that discussion. So in terms of these domestic initiatives, you're probably familiar with these, most famously the Misiones. Um, this was a major social policy drive. It encompassed programs such as Barrio Adentro going into the neighborhood to deliver primary and secondary healthcare in situ um, to communities which previously weren't wealthy enough to afford private healthcare in America, uh, to afford private healthcare, and because the public healthcare provision in Venezuela was so utterly diabolical. So Barrio Adentro, community health provision. There was an extension of citizenship rights. The four million plus Colombians who had fled to Venezuela as a result of the civil conflict in their country were given citizenship, given identity cards. There was a drive to ensure that all Venezuelans had identity cards and therefore they had access to these programs and access to voting rights. There was a shift from the old tick the box, put your thumbprint on uh, voting system towards automated electronic voting. Um, and all of these range of policies here, which were initiatives in education, healthcare, Bolivarian schools, it was about breakfast clubs, it was about employment programs, it was about literacy training. This was an immense period in Venezuela. 
And crucially, there was an emphasis on gender and recognising that you had to be gender sensitive in your programmes. It was about creating the Women's Bank, Ban Mujer, to enable women and also popular sectors who had no access previously to credit to be able to borrow and develop their own social and community networks and enterprises. Crucially, and this is really quite fatal, the decision is also taken to what Chavez calls turning off the spigots, oil taps, to Venezuela's traditional elite, economic elite. Very powerful five economic, five economic families who, because of the rentier nature of Venezuela's oil economy, had in effect become this domestic economic oligarchy. And the decision was taken, and Steve Elner has written extensively on this, and I uh, strongly recommend Steve Elner's work to you, is that the Venezuelan government decided it would have to create a new loyal economic elite to drive forward the diversification of Venezuela. Um, and this is, I would argue, the point where things start to go slightly wrong. But the key thing here is we have a mass redistribution, not just distribution, redistribution. This is very important differentiation of Venezuela's oil wealth. Um, and also, as you can see here, this in turn impacts on inequality and poverty levels in Venezuela. Um, I wrote a, a paper for the UN at the time because what was interesting was that other countries were experimenting with models of what we call CCT, conditional cash transfers. Places like Brazil and Mexico with Solidaridad, in Progreso. And the idea of these conditional cash transfers is that if you, you give money, uh, welfare payments, to the community on the basis of them fulfilling certain requirements, taking your child to school, getting inoculated against measles. And what was astonishing about what Venezuela did was to say, actually, just CCTs is totally inadequate. There's no point having this very, very small payment if you live in a situation of chronic insecurity, if you have inadequate housing, if you don't have access to enough calories, if you can't afford to buy food, and if you haven't got an education. So actually, you've got to go farther, further than CCTs. You've got to completely reconstruct the basic social services system. Um, and this really was an important lesson learned for development. And I think that this, this was a crucial phase for Venezuela. Similarly, there was a big push now to create what was called a new geometry of power, in particular influenced by the, the late and much lamented Doreen Massey. Um, and this is the idea of creating and emphasising the role of communities as the key locus of decision making. And it was communi for communities to decide what their key water needs were, for example, through water committees that brought together the community and the state. It was there for communities to decide what were the health needs they required through the Barrio Adentro programmes. We had a mass programme of land redistribution, which was intended to enable the diversification of the economy and a reduction of Venezuela's um, food dependence on imports. But there was also a big push to transform the culture of the country. Um, and in particular here, going back to what I was saying before, it was a move to recognise the indigenous identity of Venezuela, the Afro-Caribbean, Afro-Venezuelan identity, um, which had always been sidelined because of this big emphasis and uh, linkage with the United States and what was seen as being this baseball Yankee culture. If you're interested in this, this period um, and this kind of cultural revolution, I strongly uh, recommend the work of people like Naomi Schiller and Sujata Fernandez. 
On the regional front, major progress here, facilitated by the oil revenues. ALBA, um, the Bolivarian uh, the Bolivarian Alliance for the American Peoples, which brought together countries such as Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, um, the Caribbean countries, Ecuador. Instead of, you know, competing in the international economy against each other, this was about comparative advantage. If you need oil and I need flour, I'll give you oil for flour. If you need sugar, you need concrete, then we'll exchange. So this was about building a system of exchange. We also had the UNASUR organization, which was built as an alternative to the organization of American states, excluded America, excluded Canada. Um, and we also had initiatives such as Petro Caribe, where Venezuela here was aiming to distribute discounted oil to Caribbean and Central American countries, um, which were really crippled by this major surge in international oil prices. So this again was about building regional solidarities. And then because one of the perennial problems of our time is Fox News and CNN, as part of these efforts to transform the way Venezuela was portrayed externally, we have the launch of initiatives such as Telesur. International level, pushing during this phase to build a multipolar world order, major initiatives around South-South integration, really reaching out. Chavez was very active on issues around Palestine and Palestinian um, conf uh, the conflict between Israel and Palestine. Very, very sympathetic, really prioritised Palestine as being a key issue for the Venezuelan Bolivarian Revolution. Peace in Colombia. Chavez was instrumental in the peace process that today is coming off the rails in Colombia. Total rejection of the role of the United Nations in things like Haiti's um, Blue Helmets, the UN peacekeeping mission in Haiti led by Brazil. Why are we sending in Brazilian Blue Helmets to rebuild Haiti? Just give Haiti the facilities to rebuild itself. Okay, so really challenging the international order and the model of global governance. Building relations within OPEC, as I mentioned before, and with NOPEC countries, those countries not in OPEC, Algeria, uh, Russia, Vietnam, again then tying up with South-South uh, integration initiatives. And then hydrocarbon distribution programs, using oil as a tool of petro-diplomacy. Um, in particular, after the coup attempt against Chavez, Chavez decided that because Mr. Bush was so concerned about poverty in Venezuela, Chavez was very concerned about poverty in the United States. Um, so Chavez, through Sitgo, set up this oil distribution program um, with discounted heating fuel um, going to First Nation uh, communities and also to geriatric communities, homes for the elderly. Um, and also, and interestingly, and this links to Jorge's presentation the other day, uh, the use of union attaches in Venezuela's embassies around the world. So really promoting cultural and labour integration. No, no idea who that fellow is in that middle picture, Alan, do you know? The Mayor of London, ladies and gentlemen, the Mayor of London. <laughs> um, and the exchange programme between Venezuela and the UK. Then, to really accelerate now, we go into a third phase. Um, and this is when Chavez decides that Venezuela is going to start striving to build socialism of the 21st century. And this came as a bit of a surprise to very many people. Um, we, you can go through all of the writings, and even if you're looking at Greg Wilpert, Mike Gonzalez, Diane Raby, 
The lack of definition over what is socialism of the 21st century, I think, has been one of the most problematic aspects of the Bolivarian Revolution. But nevertheless, Venezuela was striving for the socialism of the 21st century during Chavez's third presidential term in 2006. Um, very loosely articulated, and again, we'll come back to this in the Q&A, but there was a real shift here, a real kind of move towards the embrace of more arguments around needing to control the economy to and have a higher role for the state in Venezuela's economy. Oil is now seen as being the motor of the revolution. Why would we diversify when actually we should be using oil as the key driver, the real way that we mobilize our domestic and international influence? So you have a process here of accelerated nationalizations. Instead of focusing only on the popular sectors, Chavez began to embrace something he hadn't really been very fond of, trade unions, building a trade union organization. Huge nationalization program with expropriation really being led from the grassroots. Um, and you also had during this period the creation of the new Socialist Party, the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, um, and a big, what was seen at that time, as anti-corruption drive. So that was the third phase, and before we actually had any real idea of what socialism of the 21st century was going to be, unfortunately uh, Chavez died in 2013. Um, and again, another surprising twist, uh, his former foreign minister, Nicolás Maduro, assumes the presidency. Um, and this is really where I think we have to be realistic about what Maduro inherited. Firstly, he inherited a catastrophically deepened dependence on oil export. Venezuela, during Chávez's government, went from relying on oil exports for about 75% of its revenues to around 92% of its revenues. What Maduro also inherited was an escalating foreign debt, which today stands at around $134 billion. What he also inherited was a very distorted economic policy. During the coup attempt of 2002, price and exchange controls have been imposed in order to reduce capital flight and to try and ensure there was distribution of food to the popular sectors, but they were retained right through um, and this is the argument of people like Mark Weisbrot. There was a failure to adjust these basic tools of the macroeconomy. And this started to create big distortions, most particularly in the distribution of dollars. There was the official dollar exchange rate, and there was also the unofficial dollar, the black market. And those who had access to dollars were the most privileged in Venezuela. It was those with political connections. Um, and this became, I would say, the key driver of the staggering corruption we have unfortunately seen unfurl in Venezuela. There was also a crisis of violence and insecurity. Venezuela, if you look at the UN today, um, in terms of homicides, is probably around the world's third most dangerous place because of its homicide levels. You cannot have a functioning participatory democracy if you can't go out in the dark. Okay, so this was a real neglect of popular security. Um, the PSUV was very fractious um, after Chavez's death, and I would argue this was because, in reality, there had been very limited opportunities within the ruling party and the broader coalition for proper discussion and debate. And I would say, in particular, the almost unilateral decision to move towards socialism of the 21st century led to a hemorrhaging out of the... Um, from the party of those kind of social democratic left Chavistas. So we see this big kind of shift. The 
Grassroots become increasingly disaffected. There's a lot of lack of real clarity over what now is the meaning of the Bolivarian Revolution, but also the perception increasingly that unless you are politically connected to the PSUV, you don't have access to dollars, you don't have access to food distribution programs. The opposition was strengthening, I'll come to them in a second, um, but also the other problem, and this is what I discussed in the New Left Review article, was that the Misiones and all of these amazing social policy initiatives simply weren't institutionalised. What Venezuela essentially developed during this period was a parallel state. The old state wasn't dissolved and removed, it was retained. At the same time, these informal structures were built, so there was these two systems running side by side. And the real problem here, and particularly with, for example, the Misiones, is, I would argue, an emphasis on quantity of provision rather than the quality of provision. There was no monitoring and evaluation. There was no proper data collection. When you're concerned about poverty and development, I'm afraid these things are important and they do matter. And the external environment was changing for Maduro. The pink tide has receded. We've seen the right wing re-elected in Brazil, in, in uh, Argentina. Um, and catastrophically, as we all know, the oil price has dropped. So I don't want to dwell on the statistics, um, but you can really see here the problem that Venezuela is facing now. Catastrophic fall in its GDP, horrendous fall in its oil exports, um, running a major um, budget deficit, and is facing catastrophic payments on its international debt. And this is a whole debate in itself. Should Venezuela be paying its international debt? Um, because what Venezuela has been doing is faithfully and loyally repaying exorbitant yields, interest rates, on its sovereign debt. Venezuela has a catastrophic, in my view, debt repayment coming up at the end of this month. Uh, between the last week of October and the first week of November, it has nearly $3 billion in debt repayment to make. In the context of an international reserve position of around $8 billion. And the way Venezuela has been making these payments has been squeezing dramatically the consumption in the country. I hold my hand up, I also work with people through political risk, and believe me, right now, the people who most want to see Maduro stay in power are holders of Venezuela's sovereign bonds. Because the Venezuelan opposition have said if they take power, they will restructure and renegotiate the debt. That's not what international bondholders want. The reserve position has collapsed and we have this roaring situation of inflation. Unofficial estimates now is that inflation is running at about 1,660%. We can say it's economic warfare. I've had the economic warfare argument since 1999. Economic pressures are really quite catastrophic. Um, huge increase in the black market value of the Bolivar. Um, so really this is about, this situation now is benefiting the locationally advantaged over the locationally disadvantaged. Access is increasingly predicated on political connection. And then as you can see here, just this constant fall. And what we're in the oil price. And this is to me the travesty of somebody who's, you know, was so enthused, about what was going on during this period, this second phase, when I did believe another world was possible. And Venezuela did present this model of alternative, transformative social change. Um, is that what we're seeing is a reversal, complete erosion, of all of the gains that were made during this phase in the mid-2000s. 
Poverty is up, inequality is up, and these are, for me, extremely serious concerns which are simply not being addressed by government's economic policy. And to give you one example of what I see as the utter stasis of policy in Venezuela is that Venezuela has retained a massive subsidy on the domestic distribution of oil, of petroleum. Huge. The price of uh, a litre of petroleum in Venezuela, as I'm sure you know, is cheaper than a litre of water. Who benefits from this massive subsidy? People who have very big cars. Who has very big cars? It's not the popular classes. I think that the retention of this oil subsidy is one of the most regressive distribution systems in Venezuela, and it is extraordinary to me that this has not been addressed by the government. The argument is, in 1989, when we lifted oil prices, it caused the Caracaso. I simply don't buy that argument. This economic situation required that this subsidy had to be addressed. But overwhelmingly, I would say, the most calamitous situation for Venezuela right now is its relationship with China. China has emerged as being the key lender for Venezuela. Venezuela's debt to China now is in the region of $63 billion. China-Venezuela's relations, to my mind, is a mortgaging out of Venezuela's future. Now, we can all put our hands up and say, well, you know, we didn't want US exploitation, we didn't want commercial exploitation by US transnationals. All I can see right now is that has simply been exchanged by exploitation by Chinese private companies and Chinese public companies. This situation for Venezuela and the terms of the lending to Venezuela have been ruinous. Venezuela essentially negotiated its debts and lending to China at a time when the price of oil was very high. In exchange for lending, Venezuela ships oil to China. Because of the fall in the oil price, Venezuela is now having to ship three times the amount to China of its oil than had been originally agreed with China under this initial 2006 uh, Chinese loan package. Venezuela is entirely, right now, economically dependent on China. And to read headlines like this, whether it's the National Interest, whether it's the Guardian, whether it's the Telegraph, whether it's the National Enquirer, is astonishing. This is not Bolivarian sovereignty. Should China allow the revolution to fail? Very quickly, we'll come back to this. Two seconds, two minutes? I mean, no, it's, it's q and this clock's wrong, isn't it? Um, the counter-revolution, completely to be anticipated, obviously to be anticipated, at least the United States has been consistent in its hostility. It doesn't matter whether you're Madeleine Albright, who refused to meet Chavez in 1997 before he was the president, or whether you're Donald Trump. The US has been remarkably consistent. Uh, whether you're Democrat or Republican, uh, what we have seen for Venezuela is the effort to contain what I believe was initially the threat of a good example. Um, and we've seen this through the influence of the anti-Castro lobby, increasingly now Marco Rubio, um, the senator from Florida, who has moved into the vacuum of any Trump appointments really to the State Department. And when you're actually yearning for appointments to be made in the US State Department, that's how dire the situation really is right now in global politics. Um, so the Beltway Network is very important. People who were previously in the Venezuelan government, went to Harvard, went to US universities, now work in American think tanks, very, very influential, privileged access to US government. And then some of the issues we've also talked about in some of our workshops, the channeling of resources to the opposition through the NED and USAID. And if you're interested in this, obviously read Ava Gollinger, um, whose book, The Chavez Code, details line by line the money that has been channeled to the opposition. 
particular concern is that the whole discourse around human rights, um, these liberal normative values, has been used against Venezuela. Human Rights Watch, very, very early on, has been very, very critical and harsh on Venezuela, which has really kind of devalued, I think, the whole normative human rights narrative. Um, and we've also seen Venezuela decertified for failure to comply in the war on terror and the war on drugs. And now we have a situation where individuals in the Venezuelan are being sanctioned. The only saving grace is that the opposition in Venezuela are completely useless. And never has there been an opposition movement that probably was so useless in the history of Latin America than the Venezuelan opposition movement. Um, totally divided, completely hapless totally counterproductive interventions and I would actually argue and in the article I'm currently writing um, really you have to understand Chavismo um, and the hegemony of Chavismo as a default of the failures of Venezuela's opposition. Um, sh complete shifts in its strategies, boycott strikes, lockout, just a permanent cycle of strategies to undermine the Venezuelan government but which simply fail to connect to ordinary Venezuelans. Um, and in particular here, fake news Okay, the, I would argue the Venezuelan opposition movement were the pioneers of fake news. Um, and you can be sat in Russia, you can be sat in Iran, you can be sat in Europe, and you'll be reading, and this really began you know, during the opposition protests uh, three years ago, led by Leopoldo Lopez, um, where you are seeing all of these images. You see here this image um, on this side here, um, and this is saying that you know, this is repression of the people of Venezuela by the Venezuelan armed forces. Unfortunately, if you do a photo image search, you'll actually see that it's a picture from Argentina. Um, similarly, SOS Venezuela repression, repression, and a picture of students being dragged away, but actually the picture is from Chile. Um, similarly here, awful Venezuelan police kick dogs. Okay. Actually, no, it's a picture from Greece, where they clearly go around kicking dogs a lot more than they do in Venezuela. Um, and then down here, the you know, collapse and decline of the healthcare services. Look at these babies. We have Barrio Dentro. This was an astonishing program. And look, now you've got babies in baskets. It's a photograph from Honduras. Sadly and unfortunately, so many of these images regurgitated by the mainstream news. But the big thing here is that the opposition have no popular connection. And going back to the keynote we had on the first day, when Keith was talking about counter-revolution as representing popular aspiration, Venezuela's opposition represent no aspiration of the popular sectors, and I discussed this in my article in NACLA. Um, so finally, my constructively two-minute critical perspective. We have enormous benefits to learn from what happened in Venezuela. This was a real beacon of progressive change. It was a landmark period, transformative impact and provider of rights that have never previously been acknowledged on the continent. Um, very important in terms of pushing back the neoliberal agenda and really created for the first time in Latin America after coups and interventions, the idea another world was possible. But here's the problems, utter ideological flux and incoherence. If you're going to nationalise everything in the economy, can you afford it? And who runs it? Is it the workers or is it the state? That was never decided. Continued uh, under-theorisation of the state itself, overly reliant and commodity-driven. What Venezuela has actually created is a new uh, elite, the so-called Boli Bourgeoisie, who are those people who have benefited from the distribution of these illicit um, subsidised dollars. Massive policy dysfunction, as I think I mentioned before, retention of regressive subsidies, and when you're going to go around nationalising Venezuela now has 562 state-owned enterprises, but you don't have the money to invest in them, that results in electricity shortages, water shortages, blackouts and power failures. 
um, and you have no money for capital reinvestment and find yourself in international arbitration. Politically, no institutionalisation of initiatives, corruption as an ongoing problem, this parallelism as I pointed out, um, community councils really never gained the traction that was necessary or vital, constantly in conflict with the ruling PSUV. And I would say at the heart of policy dysfunction has been the constant turning over of ministerial offices. If you want to know why Venezuela has such outrageous levels of crime and violence, in my view, it was because during 15 years, 13 years of the Chavez presidency, we had 11 different interior ministers. You really cannot get policy going in that context. Um, and no m &E, as I was talking, monitoring evaluation. Um, and I think the biggest tragedy is this lack of space for dissent and critical discussion. There is now a very high reliance on the role of the military um, in maintaining the governments in power. The military hold key positions in the government. They hold key positions in the economy. They have their own radio station, their own investment arm. But I think the real problem for the Venezuelan revolution, the Bolivarian revolution, is that it missed two important things. Generational change. Okay? It's now nearly 20 years since Chavez was elected. And there's a whole new generation of young people who've come through who don't remember the old punto fijo period. Um, or the salience of the Bolivarian revolution. And the other aspect here is the influence of the diaspora. Hugely underestimated by the government. Profoundly influential overseas. And my final two points, and I end this... Um, I think that if you are to have a process of revolutionary change, the rule of law does matter. Um, I just don't find it helpful that Venezuela has recreated a judicial system, but really there is no functioning rule of law in the country. And in particular, I would argue that Venezuela and its opposition have frozen the country. Um, and important progress in important areas of rights have been completely bypassed. Venezuela is so far behind the curve on LGBT rights um, that it's really ranked up there with some of the most homophobic countries in the world. On issues such as women right, women's rights and gender rights, there has still been no process on the effective legalisation of abortion. Um, so as a result of this, one of the leading causes of female mortality in Venezuela is as a result of access to unsafe abortions. I'll leave you with the thought that actually, and I think the way history may judge this is that Tragically, the reality is the Fifth Republic was very similar to the Fourth Republic. And just as the Fifth Republic had its Petro Caribe, the Fourth Republic had the San Jose oil exchange. There was Tercer Mundismo under Carlos Andrés Pérez. The FARC always had an unofficial um, embassy in Venezuela before Chavez even came to power. Um, and there's always been close relations with Iran. So ultimately, I think what we have in Venezuela is just a return sadly and unfortunately to the zero-sum game. And I'm going to run now before you all start getting really cross and angry with me, but that is unfortunately where I would have to conclude. And I'm sorry to everyone. That was a talk by Julia Buxton, Professor of Comparative Politics at Central European University's School of Public Policy and Senior Research Associate at the Global Drug Policy Observatory at Swansea University. Speaking on the topic of Venezuela, was another world possible? The talk was presented at the University of Manitoba on October 1, 2017 as part of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group's Revolutions Conference. The video of this presentation, along with videos of other speeches at the conference, are available from the group's website at geopoliticaleconomy.org. The audio of the talk was recorded by videographer Paul S. Graham. 
Music was by Purple Planet Music. More selections are available at the site www.purple-planet.com. The Global Research News Hour will return next week with more special summer programming. My name is Michael Welch. <laughs>